Hello, everyone. We are so happy you are here. My name is Virginia Prodan. I am the host of Courageous Leadership with Virginia Prodan podcast, which airs every Wednesday and Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time on Spotify, Podbean, uh, Apple Podcast, YouTube, and now on Edify Podcast Network, uh, the best Christian platform. We are so happy for you to come here and for some of you that participated to our podcast, you know that I use my own experience to encourage you that God put uh, skills and talents in you and he wants you to be a courageous leader. And many times I use my own experience and some of you read the book, Saving My Assassin, and how God used to build me as a courageous leader, even in socialist and communist Romania. But our podcast doesn't limit to only to this. We love to invite courageous leaders in their diff- in different areas that will uh, train and teach us and share with us how God built the leader in them and how they use the leadership position in different areas. And today we have a very, very special courageous leader. Uh, his name is Scott Edelman. He is um, a retired foreign service officer with United States Department of State. He received after 35 years exceptional performance award uh, upon his uh, departure. He joined the foreign service in uh, 1989. He was the, a political officer uh, at the United States Embassy in Romania, where in fact I met him for the first time many years ago, and he was instrumental in protecting me and protecting freedom uh, and religious freedom in Romania. We'll we'll talk about more about this. Uh, During his his work with the Department of State, he received two superior honor awards and a meritorious honor award. Um, He also received I on Air's Best New Analyst Award in 2005. From 2006 to 2008, he was an assistant professor of political science at United States Air Force Academy. And he served um, as the department, uh, State Department diplomat and in residence. That was very important to me because it was the year when my son uh, started United States Air Force Academy and he was one of the students there. Um, I will uh, let Scott talk more about his involvement and his role with the United States Department of State. But Scott, thank you so very much for coming here. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your amazing work at American Embassy in Romania during socialist and communist in Romania, and also all over the world. So uh, would you introduce yourself to our audience, uh, audio and video audience, please? Well, thank you very much, uh, Virginia. It's uh, it's a pleasure to join you, and um, uh, and it's a blessing that our lives have intersected in in so many ways over the years. So it's always a pleasure to to, to chat with you. Um, 
I, I appreciate that very generous introduction. I would hardly characterize myself as unusually courageous or in a leadership position. Um, I always was very conscious during all of my time with the Department of State that I represented the United States of America. I said it's like being a salesman for the best product in the world. Um, I was representing all of the people of the United States. Every State Department officer does that and should think of himself or herself as doing so. Uh, and I was representing the ideals of the United States. And so um, Romania was my first overseas assignment. Uh, it was unique because um, uh, we really did, uh, you much more directly than I did as a citizen, uh, confront evil. Um, and it was um, one of the most rewarding asp um, aspects of my career to be able to represent um, uh, our ideals of freedom uh, and to try to assist um, dissidents such as yourself uh, when I was there. And that was, that was part of our policy at the time. This was not just because it was during the Reagan administration. This is longstanding American policy, um, both Democratic and Republican administrations. Yes, and I, I really appreciate that. And what I was amazed is that all of you, including the ambassador, uh, knew Romanian language. And I remember being invited at the American embassy and I was just saying something to someone, maybe to you, because I knew that, that you knew English, you knew Romanian. And all of a sudden the ambassador responded to me in Romanian. I was shocked. I, I didn't expect that. And very kindly he explained to me, I need to know Romanians because I need to walk around on the streets and hear what people are saying, not when they are saying to me, but they're saying to each other. So that was absolutely amazing the way, um, you know, the Americans presented to the world and tried to help. We have... Um... That's long been recognized by the State Department. We actually have a kind of mini college campus. Uh, it's called the Foreign Service Institute, uh, where American diplomats are trained in both the language and the culture of the country to which they're being assigned. It's not always perfect, and not everyone has a chance to take those courses. Um, but uh, in every one of my assignments, I had some prior training and often it was, um, it included uh, the language of that country. It's uh, the only way that you can really um, uh, honestly uh, um, report on what you're seeing. And, and uh, as the ambassador said, as you quoted, to be able to walk around among the people and to have a feel for the society that you're assigned to. And that's part of our job. We represent the United States. We also um, report back to Washington on what the situation is like uh, in uh, in the country. A big part of my job when I was in Bucharest was um, to report on um, on human rights trials and distance. That is, again, how we first met. Um, and uh, then the State Department would distribute that information more widely in our human rights reports and um, sometimes to uh, um, non-governmental organizations that would uh, uh, lo lobby on behalf of dissidents. 
yeah, thanks to you and your work and the work of the American Embassy, many of my cases became part of United Nations reports on human rights violations and also part of United States Department of State's reports on human rights violations. Um, this was a work, and my book, Saving My Assassin, described that it was a work that was done. It, it was impossible to do it by myself. God organized and put people on my pad and you at American Embassy, you personally, you came and talked many times with me about cases and so forth to understand that. It, it was uh, instrumental in not only spreading all over the world, you know, the situation in Romania to be known, but also to protect my own life and the life of many other people that spoke up against the dictator. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that I did, it's partly because, uh, like you, I have also a legal background. Um, yes. I was assigned to be the one who went to a lot of the, uh, the trials. Again, I was only one of several people at the embassy, the ambassador, our political counselors, uh, my colleagues, all of whom worked on, on these issues. Um, but I would be assigned to go to these trials and I'd often sit in the back and, um, and quietly take notes. And I have to say, one of the highlights of my life was when one of the people um, whose cases, I think it may have actually been a case that you had worked on. Um, it was someone who was um, arrested for smuggling Bibles, but was charged with a ridiculous um, uh, attempted murder. Uh, uh -huh. charge. And when he was finally released and um, he came to the embassy because he was going to be admitted to the United States as a political refugee, um, I remember getting a call. This was very much toward the end of my assignment uh, from someone in our consular section said, there's someone here who wants to meet you. So I didn't know who it was. I went down uh, to their office and he said, you know, we never spoke. We never had a chance to meet before, but I want you to know that I saw you in the back of the courtroom every step of the way, every time we were out there uh, for, a, for the a trial and through the appeals. And I knew that meant that, that I was not alone, that the world knew what was happening. And yes, that was, and as I said, it was not me personally, it was me representing the United States. Um, uh, and um, and I, I have to say that was one of the highlights of my life, not just my career. Yeah, it, it was important. It was important for us. I know that, uh, you know, that the world knew about um, the situation, what we were, um, um, you know, facing, and the fact that you never knew. I, I know personally that going to work and going to trial, I never knew if I would return home. And if I would be alive, but having the representatives there from the United States and knowing that no matter what, the world will know about what happened and it's not in vain, that was important. In fact, one of your colleagues uh, who was uh, taking picture of one of the church that the dictator um, demolished, like 200 years old or more, uh, got arrested. Do you remember that? Yes, um, I do remember that. Um, uh, that was, um, but eventually released, of course, uh, quickly released because uh, um, I believe uh, him, if, I, if it's the person I remember, um, you know, had diplomatic status. So we were a little bit protected. Um, but, um, 
But I've, I also had occasions, um, both in Romania and um, once on a visit to Hungary, uh, when um, local police would get a little bit upset because we were looking at things they didn't want us to see. And um, we'd, we'd get little visits uh, from people uh, complaining about, uh, about things like that. Um, on, on your broader topic of socialism, I want to say one of the, one of the interesting things was that a weakness in a way of the socialist system is that um, when it took over in a country such as Romania, it would take on um, all of the institutions of a normal society, a normal judicial system, and in effect sort of ape what a normal society would do. That's why you had trials still and why you had the ability to appear there. Uh, the substance was eaten out. Um, you know, the, the, the results would be unjust in the, in the court system. But, um, but it still tried to pretend to be a normal court system and a normal society. Uh, and, and that was um, a weakness that could be exploited because we could, we could actually go and observe what happened. And our presence also meant, um, uh, in another case, I remember one of the lawyers uh, saying to me, you know, that's the most by the book that I've ever seen a court um, uh, um, operate here in Romania. And it was, I think, because I was there and they were trying to pretend that it was a real court. That is so true. And for people that might not know, it's, it was also because American, uh, you know, government uh, gave Romania the most favored nation status. And yes. that, that forced them to act like a normal uh, country, like to pretend that they respect the human rights. And also that gave them the, force them, if you want to, to have a tr court, a trial. And in the presence of American embassy and other embassy, they were, uh, you know, in the back to actually apply the law and say, well, I have to give, give those rights to people and release those people that were arrested for sharing the Bible or so forth. So that, that was uh, something. Um, for people with your experience, with everything that you absorb in socialist Romania, what would you say to them, socialist is not a solution for America? Well, first of all, I mean, socialism, it's, it's like the, uh, the proverbial ball player who, who can't hit, but he can't field either. Uh, socialism is, um, is evil in concept, uh, but it also doesn't work <laughs> uh, at the same time. Um, uh, it's never actually worked in any society that it's been in. Um, either um, the economy has been wrecked and eventually it, it devolves into, um, into a dictatorship, uh, or uh, when it's been tried in a democratic in a democratic form in Western Europe, um, the, the societies eventually had to democratically move away from it because, um, again, uh, what it, what is socialism? It's it's a very broad term. It's sometimes misused. In its broadest sense, um, it is the concept uh, that the state um, it says society, but but there has to be someone who does this. The state should run the economy, should run the society, and, and operate it centrally. Um, human society is simply too complex to be run um, by, um, by bureaucrats. Um, uh, one of the reasons socialism historically appealed to intellectuals was because even though um, in theory 
It's the society that runs everything. In fact, it's got to be um, experts uh, to do so. Um, so when it appeared in, it, it's never been popular in the U.S. as a concept historically, partly because um, socialism uh, also posits, and I'm I'm quoting from um, from what probably one of the greatest men I ever knew, a professor of mine in college named Jan Karski, uh, who had been a Polish diplomat and underground fighter during the Second World War, later became a well-known and beloved professor here in, in Washington at Georgetown University. Um, and I, in his course, I always remember how he uh, explained, socialism posits a world of eternal conflict. There is always a conflict of class against class of some part of society against another part of society, and one part has to dominate the other. Um, it's inherently violent in concept because you cannot um, you you cannot take from some and give to others without doing it by force. Um, and as I said, it simply doesn't work because society cannot be run that way. It's never been popular in the U.S. Because we always had um, less of a of a um, structured, um, uh, less of a firm and rigid social structure than Europe had. We didn't have an aristocracy. It's actually outlawed in our constitution, as you know. There, there's no titles of nobility in the United States. Um, in Europe, it appealed to people who felt that they um, had no possibility of advancement. In America, there was always this sense. Even during the worst of times, when socialism was its most popular and during the Great Depression, um, there was always a sense that somehow in America, if you really worked hard, you studied, you, 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 or you focused on what you were doing, you would manage to succeed. And we always had a, an element of social mobility. Um, so but why, why do you think what do you think is so popular now in America or it's popular among young people and some of them not all of them but it's more popular now than before well um socialists in America have always tried to come up with an explanation historically for why it wasn't popular in the 60s there was this theory that was very popular in academia it was called false consciousness they couldn't figure out why the working class in America never adopted it the way it did it in some European countries before they learned. And then eventually they would rebel against it. Um, and it was said, well, there was this false consciousness that people could rise and, and that we had social mobility and, and, and to deny it. Um, that fell apart. Um, eventually in America, I think it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, it was realized among those people who were who were active socialists or leftists that they were never going to succeed in America by appealing to the working class or to actually in America we have more of a working middle class than than uh, and, and a middle class so they decided to shift gears and focus instead on young people who are naive and and very idealistic we've all been young we've all been idealistic and we've all uh, and some of us have held on to our ideals, but with a touch of realism as we got older. Um, and it appealed to their sense that it was somehow just, um, that you were you were still uh, taking from some and giving to others, but that, that it was just. Um, in America right now, one of the um, one of the interesting manifestations is to try to change from uh, class-based socialism to a race-based socialism. 
this whole theory of what's called critical race theory is essentially a race-based socialism. The idea that that the uh, conflict, again, as just as Professor Karski put it, that's a world of eternal conflict, that the conflict is not class against class, it's race against race, and that it's eternal. It was here in the beginning, and it continues now. Um, all of this is an attempt to appeal to um, youthful idealism, that you can create a much better world, but it but it's based on the idea that the way you create the much better world is by dividing society and taking from one to the uh, to give to the other, uh, rather than by raising all of society together. Exactly. To me, is uh, um, when you adopt this theor- theory, you create people um, um, dependent on uh, on the government yes. and you cut off their uh, opportunities to build for themselves i many times i go and speak even uh, non christians not conservative places and when i share my story that i came to in this country not knowing one word in english i knew five languages but not english I learned English. I went back to law school and I graduated second time from law school here in Dallas, Texas. I um, built my law firm. I wrote my book. I speak in many places. I raised three kids, one graduated from SMU, one from Harvard Law School and the other one from Air Force Academy. They all stand up and say, nobody told us you know, the real story of socialism and how good we have it here. They finally realize you were hard in America and you rebuild your life. You do things that you're supposed to have. And many of them, they change their point of view. They they don't believe anymore in socialism because it's an ideology that they are selling to them. It's a lie that they are selling to them, a lie that will put them in a cage for as, as a slave of, uh, of, of the government. And we hope that people will take you know, from what what you explained from your own experience in socialist Romania and in other countries that socialist is not uh, the solution for uh, America. That we have a system, like you said, that you can re- you can build or rebuild your your life, but by working hard. Yeah, and I think you put your finger on on um, on on a key point here, which is that. Um, in order to succeed, socialism has to convince some people that they can never rise by dint of their own um, work, that they are permanently an underclass and that there's a permanent overclass. Um, and all of American experience um, is against that. That's that's what makes this such a uniquely dynamic society and why, in the end, I am optimistic that it cannot really take hold here unless we. Um, you know, we, we still have to be vigilant. We still have to fight against it. But yes. um, but I don't think it I don't think it appeals to the basic American character. Uh, the, this idea that you are an individual and that individuals can succeed. You can work with other people, but you're never you're never permanently a victim or um, and there are no permanent. Uh, there's no permanent overclass. Um, as I said, we can talk about how it didn't work in Europe. Um, 
how painful it was. Uh, you would have heard from your friends in Romania how painful it was when they tried to dismantle it in the end. Yes. Uh, I was in Poland after Romania. Uh, and I remember that we were sending Peace Corps uh, economists as Peace Corps volunteers to try to help the Poles to rebuild a normal working living economy. Um, and uh, the Polish president at the time famously said that it was um, much easier to turn an aquarium into fish soup than to turn fish soup back into an aquarium. Uh, a living Part of what, it, what went on it, it was just explaining to people how to work in a living economy where enterprises um, that had been producing widgets had no idea what the widgets were for. Um, and if the widgets didn't really work, it didn't really matter to them. And it was all centrally um, directed. As I said, it, it's, it's, it's evil in concept because it is based on this concept of violence and eternal conflict and of one part of society taking from another. But it also doesn't work. You cannot run a modern economy. You cannot have innovation. You cannot have um, people succeeding or developing their own ideas and, and their own businesses and their own um, lives. You cannot have that if everything is directed from above. You, you are so right. You explain it in such an amazing way that you, how you, you build it, you build it on violence and how hard it is to dismantle to create a democratic country after after um, you realize that it's not working. Um, Scott, I just want to thank you so very much for participating to our podcast. And I want, I, I hope that people take to heart the amazing uh, ideas and suggestions that you gave all of us to uh, work with them, to think about when we think, and even if we don't believe in socialism, When we talk with other people that believe in socialists, use those uh, ideas. Thank you so very much. Again, we just we need to bring you back and talk more about all those things. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Virginia. It's always a pleasure to see you, to chat with you, um, um, and when I meet the kids, also it's always a pleasure. I'm I'm so glad that I've had a chance to meet them as well over the years. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, viewing our podcast, Courageous Leadership with Virginia Pradhan, which airs each Wednesday and Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time on Spotify, Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now on Anything Podcast Network, the best Christian platform. Thank you so much for your participation. I hope that um, you take Scott Edelman's um, ideas and suggestions to heart. If you have any questions, don't forget to send us your questions. And until next time, keep in touch. And don't forget, you have everything you need in you to be a courageous leader. And we are here to help you. Keep in touch. Bye-bye.